It's, uh, <clears throat> it's Palm Sunday, <sighs> evidenced by the, the palms everywhere. And, uh, and yeah, next week is Easter, just um, Resurrection Sunday. Please join us. It's going to be fun, a good time on the beach. Um, but also, just note, we were out there last Sunday morning. Elijah and I rode our bikes out there. It could get windy and cold. I think you know that living here. Just remember. <laughs> Just remember. Bring a jacket, um, a blanket, chairs to sit on, you know, the, the normal stuff. And uh, some of us will hang out. We, we plan on hanging out later in the day and um, eating on the beach and hanging out. So if you are free and like to hang out with us, then please do. Okay, so today we remember the Christian church, we, we celebrate, we remember the beginning of Jesus' Passion Week. We uh, take this time annually to remember and rehearse and, and recall all that Jesus did in that last week of his life. Today, Palm Sunday, as we read earlier, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem to the shouts of Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. The people honestly had no idea what they were shouting. The crowds were gathered. They were in a, in a tizzy. They were, there was fever, fever pitch going. They were excited. Here comes this Messiah figure. They had in mind a savior, for sure. I mean, that's what Hosanna means, literally, Lord save. They had in mind a savior, but the savior they had in mind was modeled after Judah the Hammer from the Maccabean Revolt. They had a different kind of savior in mind. They wanted Jesus to ride in on a war horse. And instead, he rides in on a beast of burden. They wanted him to overthrow the corrupt government, overthrow the Roman rulers and powers. And instead, Jesus is riding on this donkey in a steady pace, headed for the cross to be crucified. So as we enter Holy Week... As we take this next week to remember and reflect, I just wanted to encourage us to reread this story. Reread the passion narratives over and over again this week. C.S. Lewis, writing as a literary critic, he proposed a good test for the quality of writing was how often it deserved to be read. Essentially, I think I mean, Twitter didn't exist, but Twitter would be the bottom of the totem pole. <laughs> you only need to read it once. If that, probably don't even need to read it. Magazine articles are down there. The passion narrative is probably at the top. It deserves to be reread over and over and over again. To remember, to recall, to reflect. 
my encouragement this week. This is all bonus pre-sermon, guys. Uh, Take some time this week. Read the passion narratives. Tonight, though, we are going to continue on through Daniel, continue through this book that we've been studying. You guys been enjoying it? Yeah? Getting a lot out of it, I hope. How many of you guys are reading along? Reading good? Tonight we're going to look at chapter 5. And I realize that Britain jumped us right into the middle of the story. So we didn't even hear the setup. We didn't hear what happened. That's okay. We'll get into it. This is the passage where we get the saying, the writing is on the wall. This is the passage where that saying comes from. This is one of those chapters that you really need to read over and over again. You need to think it through and reread it a couple times to allow it to sink in and to have its full effect. And in this chapter, as we have been studying so far, this takes a pretty big leap forward chronologically. The time jumps ahead quite a bit here. So far, everything has had to do and surrounded Nebuchadnezzar as the king. But in this chapter, in chapter 5, we meet a new king, Belshazzar. Technically, he probably wasn't even really a king. Historians have puzzled, and if you go, if you spend any time reading the history behind this, it gets into a bit of a mess because people didn't even think Belshazzar was a true historical figure until recently they found actually cylinders of writing that verified this. Technically, he was the son of the king. The true king, this is why he offers Daniel the third position, because he only held the second. The true king had taken off for a decade. He was out of Babylon. And he left Belshazzar as his co-regent while he was gone. And he would end up, Belshazzar would end up to be the last ruler of this Babylonian empire. So what's happening here, the story that we jumped halfway into, Belshazzar is throwing a party. He's throwing a party for all of his nobility. He's got, Scripture says, a thousand of his lords. It's probably just a way of exaggerating. He's got a large portion of the Babylonian nobility there. All the while, we know from the end of the story, Darius is at the gate. The Persians are coming. They're outside the gate, ready to siege the city. The siege might have already begun. Scholars disagree about exactly what Belshazzar was trying to accomplish by throwing this party. Some think that he is so confident, so prideful, so arrogant, so, f- so trusting in the mechanism and the machine that Babylon had built that he was just ignoring the threat that was at the gate and having a good time and a good party. There's credit to this. I mean, the Babylonian walls were thought to be impenetrable. Ultimately, historians say did 
uh, what Darius did to get into the city was he diverted the river that flowed into it to gain access. The walls were said to be 320 feet tall and 80 feet thick. That was, that was pretty serious walls. That's like the Statue of Liberty, tall. Serious walls. City was well established, so well established, even if it was sieged, it had agriculture and water in it so that it, you couldn't starve it out. They had to actually divert the Euphrates River to gain access. Others think that this was an attempt to numb or ignore, possibly, the coming destruction. So he's gathering his nobles to party and to get them intoxicated. Indulge in their last bit of hedonistic pleasure. I'm sure what was actually happening is probably somewhat of a combination of both of those options. We know that Belshazzar was quite arrogant. We know this because of what Daniel says to him later. We know that he was prideful in the way that we saw the Lord deal with his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, in the chapter previously. Whatever the occasion, whatever was going on, we are simply told that Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords. So ultimately, this again is a story about food. We started this book, Daniel, with a story about food, and here we're bookending this section about the Babylonian Empire with another story about food. In many ways, this story parallels that of chapter 1, where Daniel and his friends are brought into Babylon for the first time. Remember, Daniel and his friends, as they're brought in, they refuse to partake in the king's wine and delicacies. They refuse to partake in the indulgences of the king. This is the book ending parallel to that story. So here's how the story plays out. The king is drinking. He's celebrating in front of his nobles. And he tastes the wine and something occurs to him. Something strikes him. And he remembers, he recalls that there is in storage these golden vessels, these golden cups that were used in the temple worship in Jerusalem. So he sends, he calls his servants, and he has them bring the golden temple vessels that had been taken from Jerusalem to, uh, from the Jerusalem temple to be used in the feast. On the first reading of this, it probably can seem like this is just a whim. Just, oh, we need cups. Oh, there's, I remembered there's some cups in the storage. Go get those. But I think this was clearly something that he had thought about in his heart and his mind for a while. We know from what Daniel says to him later on that Belshazzar knew full well about these vessels. That he knew full well about the God of the, God of, uh, the, God of the Israelites. He knew full well about Yahweh and his power because he knew of what had happened to Nebuchadnezzar. 
He knew that Nebuchadnezzar had treated these vessels with respect. He knew exactly where they were to be found, and he decided deliberately to go and have them brought into this party, to this feast. Now, these were magnificent. These, the finest craftsmen, highly skilled, anointed craftsmen had made these golden vessels. You can almost imagine his reasoning. Why should something so beautiful be left in the storage? <laughs> or even a museum? Why should they not be used to make this amazing feast even more amazing? You can, you can almost hear his rationale. I don't even think that goes to the heart of Belshazzar's motivation here. I think that he knew that these were instruments of worship to the God of Israel, to the one true God. I think he knew that Nebuchadnezzar had had a supernatural experience with the God who stood behind these objects of worship. I think he knew that Nebuchadnezzar had eventually come to worship and honor the God behind these vessels, the one true God, the living God, the God of heaven, the God of earth. He knew all of that, and yet he rejected it. He rejected it and so chose publicly, openly, brazenly to defy the God of heaven. blasphemously repudiate him publicly as a gesture in front of all of his nobility. For Belshazzar, it would almost seem that there's nothing sacred except perhaps himself, his position, his wealth, his power, his authority. And if I'm honest, a lot of us in sort of the Modern West, this is how we live. There's nothing really sacred, just my rights, my inalienable rights, my happiness, my pursuit of happiness, my comfort, my rights. But Belshazzar and his guests were not prepared for what would happen next. They weren't ready for what was about to happen. They should have been. They should have been ready because it was not really that long ago that Nebuchadnezzar had thrown a similar ceremony where he insisted on the worship of a golden image, remember? Only to have his fiery furnace that was the display of his power and his strength taken down to nothing by the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The same God behind these gold vessels that they're now defying, he should have known. And in an instance, in an instance, this lavish feast, this celebration turned to sheer terror. At once, every eye caught sight of what looked like a human hand writing in the plaster of the palace wall, illuminated by a lampstand. The wine stopped flowing. Belshazzar was shaken to the core. This proud 
man, this proud king, this is what it says, verse 6. The king's color changed. His thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. All the color was drained from his face. His whole body began to shake uncontrollably. You'll remember in chapter 1, when Daniel and his friends chose to honor Yahweh, what happened? The, the net result, their color was better and their strength was better than all those around them. And here, in a direct contrast, the king who has lost his, he has lost his color, he has lost his fitness as a result of his uninhibited blasphemous drinking. The very God that Belshazzar had declared was declaring in his actions to not even exist or to be unpowerful, unable to actually do anything, weak and inferior. That same God has now broken in broken through all the feeble defenses, and at once Yahweh had the full attention of the king and everyone in the room. The very God that he didn't believe in was there in his midst, alive and active. There was no denying it. So as we've seen happen before, he does the same thing Nebuchadnezzar did. He summons his advisors. He's trying to make some sense of what had just happened. So he summons his advisors to try to make some sense of what the writing on the wall meant. But they're completely unsuccessful. The words were clearly illuminated by the light of the lampstand. They were in a script that they could read. It was a common text. Familiar, they were familiar with it. These were words that they were familiar with. They were so, words that are associated with weights and measurements, money. But ultimately, not the light of the lampstand nor the light of the intellect of those that he brought in could enable them to see what this actually meant. It was just words on the wall. So when none of the advisors could interpret the writing, the queen, or I think most likely the queen mother, this is possibly actually Nebuchadnezzar's widow, comes to the room, calms things down a bit, and she knows who can interpret this. She knows that if anyone can interpret it and speak some wisdom into the situation, it would be Daniel. She's right. So in comes Daniel. And the king offers him everything. He offers him wealth, prestige, the third most powerful position in the kingdom. He obviously still thought, this is his pride and arrogance showing, he still thought that money could buy his way out of anything. Daniel, I love this, he simply just brushes off the offer. You can keep all of your stuff. 
no, I'm not motivated by that. What's interesting to me, though, as I was thinking about this, under different circumstances, we know because, as we saw with Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel might have accepted this offer. He kind of did with Nebuchadnezzar. But he was not interested in being enriched by a man who would so blatantly devalue and disrespect the one true and living God. For Daniel, it was actually important how he got his position and authority, not just the fact that he had it. Continuing with the story, Daniel takes... uh, So Daniel takes Belshazzar and apparently the whole room into this interpretation. He shows them what the natural light of the lampstand and the uh, weak light of the advisors had failed to show. Daniel's light, his illumination, was spiritual. It comes from the one true living God. I find it ironic, too. Remember... When Daniel and his friends were taken in, into captivity, they were put in the, this like school of Babylon. They were indoctrinated and taught the language and the ways of the Chaldeans. It was in that school that Daniel learned how to read that script that was on the wall. In the natural, they had the same ability, but Daniel had something different. He had access to the one true God. read verse 18. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. Where did Nebuchadnezzar's kingship, glory, and majesty come from? From Yahweh, from God. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples and nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened, so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory taken from him. Remember, we read that story. It becomes like a beast of the field. Jump down to verse 22. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. But you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. And you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone, which do not see or do not hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. You see, Belshazzar was not only to be judged, he was to know full well why Yahweh was judging him. This wasn't just about a quick, quick, nondescript judgment. 
Belshazzar had to know why he was being judged. This was an indictment. And Daniel reminds him of something he knew very well. He reminds him that Nebuchadnezzar had come to realize that the source of his power, the source of his majesty, his greatness was God, was Yahweh. It was not of himself. God had humbled him when his pride had gotten the better of him. And so now this trembling king had known that he had gone too far. He knew the story of Nebuchadnezzar. Perhaps he had seen it firsthand as a child, how Yahweh had humbled him. But knowing all of this, he still chose to toast to the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Gods that didn't see, hear, or know. Just so you know, that's biblical trash talk for like no God at all. Not even a real God. It's hard to imagine a more blatant example of a violation of the first commandment. And as I was thinking through this passage, I was thinking about centuries before this happened, the very hand of God, the same hand that takes center stage in our passage tonight, had written the Ten Commandments on two tablets of stone and given them to Moses. The same hand that wrote the law had written there on the wall of the, in plaster. The same hand, what Daniel says, is also what is holding the king's life. The light of the law, the light of, the light of God had pointed on the life of this king, and it was more than he could bear. He must have had some sense that this experience meant doom. Like I said, he probably knew that Darius was sieging the city as, he's, as they were partying. Sure enough, this is what Daniel says, verse 24. And from his presence, the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. Jump down to verse 27. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. The verdict was swift and final. As Daniel interprets the writing, it becomes abundantly clear. Belshazzar's value system, his ethics, his morals, was polar opposite of what it should have been. By using these holy vessels for his party, he showed that he was a complete hedonist. He only cared about his own pleasure, his own desire, and that was his supreme value, was himself. Amazingly, Belshazzar still can't see what's happening. In spite of the fact that he'd just been tried, convicted, and sentenced, by the one true God, he still 
went on as if nothing had happened. He offers Daniel, he insists on performing the charade of, of uh, giving Daniel the, this high office and proclaiming him as the third most powerful in the kingdom. Unknown to him, however, that kingdom that he's giving away power in only had hours longer to still exist. And so that lampstand and that great banquet hall would eventually run out of oil. Eventually, that room would go dark. The writing would be swallowed up by darkness. But that hand that wrote on the wall in Babylon would write again. The next time, it'd be on the ground in the city of Jerusalem. The Gospel of John includes this story of this writing in the ground as the setup to this famous verse, this claim that Jesus made. I didn't actually get these in the slides. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to John 8. John 8, verse 12. And again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. It's one of Jesus' most famous claims about himself. I am the light of the world. But right before this, John inserts this story. The story of some religious leaders trying to entrap Jesus. They're trying to trap him. They had caught a woman in the act of adultery. They brought her to Jesus. Let's read John 8, 2. Early in the morning, they came uh, he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placed her in the midst. They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? These religious leaders had read the writing that writing of the law, which came from the hand of God. They had read the writing. These writings condemned adultery. They could see that much. They knew that. So they exposed this woman to the light of the law, thinking that it might force Jesus to contradict this law by refusing to apply the requirements of punishment, stoning her to death. Catch the drama of that story? In one of the oddest stories, in my opinion, of Jesus' ministry on the earth, this, Jesus responds by bending down and writing with his finger on the ground. John doesn't tell us what Jesus wrote. Just that the religious leaders kept pressing for a response. 
John 8, 7. Eventually, Jesus stands up. He says this, 8, 7. As they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. The effect was dramatic. Verse 9. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. They had shown the light of the law on this woman. They were ready to execute judgment. But they had not thought, they had thought nothing to fear the law for themselves. They had not allowed the law, the light of the law, to expose them. However, unknowingly to them, they had just come into the very presence of a much stronger light than even the light of the law. The law is a tutor that points to this light. They'd come into the presence of the light of the world, as Jesus would say later. Could it have been, possibly, that Jesus' writing had convicted, his writing in the, in the sand, had convicted them of their sin, just like the writing on Belshazzar's wall had confronted his sin? And in a flip of circumstances, the woman's accusers felt exposed. They felt called out, ashamed. They could not bear the light like this. So they walked away from it into darkness. But who remains in the light? The woman. The woman remains in Jesus' presence. She did not flee into darkness. She stayed in the light. She felt and indeed was no less guilty than those religious leaders who had just left. But she could see that it was Jesus who protected her not only from their callous attitudes, but ultimately from death. They were trying to kill her. And while it might be uncomfortable for her to sit in the light that is Jesus, where else is she to go? So what would Jesus say to her now? She clearly felt safe to wait, to sit in the light of his presence. Verse 10, Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. Jesus' reply was this beautiful picture of forgiveness. He says, and Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. 
It's important to note, he does not condone her sin. From then on, her life was to be different. But the energy to live that different life was fueled and motivated by that intense forgiveness of the light of Jesus. Sitting in his presence and experiencing that intense forgiveness was the very motivation that she would not sin again. Had completely changed her life. And that still has that effect on us today. Today we don't simply have a silent witness of some symbolic gold vessels to point to the reality of Yahweh. We have Jesus Christ, God himself, God in flesh. He came into the world, he took on flesh, he entered into people's houses, he ate and drank with them, he made himself known. He put on display a life unmarked by the stain of sin. And yet, much like Daniel in his day was rejected and put aside by the powerful, he was forgotten. Jesus was rejected. This is what we look at this week as we remember the passion. They took his life. They nailed him to a cross. They beat him. They forced him to wear a crown with long thorns. They spit at him. They shook their fist at him. They rejected and mocked him. The same crowd that cheered on that Palm Sunday, Hosanna, meaning Lord save now, is the same crowd that a few days later would be chanting, crucify him, crucify him. This was not the sort of Messiah they wanted. The light of this Messiah was too much to bear. This Jesus was not just another military leader. He was none other than the eternal Son of God. God, the eternal Father, had raised him and would raise him from the dead through the power of the Spirit. He would give him the name above every other name and enthrone him in power and glory. And at his name, by the power of Jesus, what he accomplished on the cross, forgiveness is freely available to all who would sit under his light, who would come to him, repent, and trust him as their master. You guys, this is the good news. This is what we celebrate this week. The same hand that wrote the law on stone for Moses wrote in that wall in Babylon and in the dust in Jerusalem. And it still writes today on repentant and believing hearts. Paul describes the way a disciple of Jesus displays and proclaims the gospel this way. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 3, he says this, 
and you show that you are a letter from Christ, a message from Christ, delivered by us, written not by the ink, not by ink, but, by, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human heart. Disciples of Jesus, you are a message from Christ. He is written on your hearts. The message, this glad news of the gospel is written by the very hand that wrote on that wall in Babylon. It's written on your heart. So where does that leave us? I always like to finish these thoughts with what does this mean for us here and now? How do we live out the implications of this now? After all, our goal from all of these as we study these passages in the Bible is that they would change us. That we would sit under the light of the word and it would transform us into his image. That we as aliens and strangers on the earth, as exiles in some form of Babylon, that we would live as children of the light. As letters written by God. By the God of heaven and earth. That when the light shines on our lives, when the light of Christ shines, don't run from it. Allow yourself to sit in that light. When the word convicts, allow yourself to sit there and be challenged by it. The word is like a sword that cuts. And as disciples of Jesus, the, the law is a tutor that leads us to Jesus. It points us to him. This is why we sit under the teaching of the scripture. This is why we're students of the words, why we study it. Points us to restoration. All week, I couldn't help think of Nikolai's question towards the end of his sermon last week. He said, where are the Daniels today? Are we so caught up with our lives and our, what's going on? With our comfort and our pleasure that we're hidden in darkness? Or are we living as the light of the world, as a city on a hill, as a lamp that points to the one true and living God? to the one God who actually acts on behalf of his people. He actually responds when we pray. He hears and responds. He is moved to action when we as disciples of Jesus pray, he moves. There's no God like that. So as we remember Jesus' Passion Week, as we remember and reflect on the story of the cross and the resurrection. Let's not be like the crowds who cheered for a Messiah made up in our own image, attempting to accomplish what we want him to accomplish. 
Let's not be like the religious leaders, shining the light of the law on those around us and not ourselves sitting in it, unwilling to sit under the weight of that law, of that light ourselves. Let us come to the word and let it challenge us and transform us into his image and into his likeness. Amen? I'm going to pray and worship team come back up. We're going to take communion in a few minutes. I encourage you during first song or two, not sure, go ahead and grab the elements. Father, I thank you that you are so faithful. You are so kind and forgiving. That when we come to you and we sit in your presence, we allow the light to shine on us, that it does transform us into your image. That there is power in that. God, I pray that we would remember this week all that you have done, the cost associated with that forgiveness. Lead us and guide us, Jesus. Amen.